Our title is Mission Creep at the TSA and the Case for Privatization. Now, I think a lot of people, when they think of the TSA, they definitely think of creepy. Uh, the, the, whether you go through the strip search machines or whether you take the pat down, I take the pat down massage and have never stood in one of those machines. Uh, it's, a, it's a creepy process and it disturbs a lot of people. It disturbs a lot of your boss's constituents. I need to continue working on that. But there are a broadening array of programs that the Transportation Security Administration uh, has going and th that they are seeking to expand, like the SPOT program, which we'll talk about today, and Viper. Um, the issue that, that we're going to talk about is not just whether or not, whether it should be public or private employees that, that perform the functions of the TSA. That's an issue, but I think the issues are actually a lot broader. Uh, they inc include the security issues. They include, include the cost and benefits of TSA programs. For heaven's sake, they include constitutional rights, which we should have at the airport. It's unclear whether we do. And issues like administrative law and transparent government. So, the issues are particularly timely uh, because we're reading in the newspaper regularly about the Viper program and its expansion. Uh, just within the last days, the Government Accountability Office issued a report on the SPOT program, which is quite damning. The GAO was more clear about the negatives of this program than it is uh, in most any other circumstance. The order of the day will be first to hear from Chris Edwards. Chris, unfortunately, has to leave rather quickly because he has his uh, immigration interview uh, not too long, uh, sort of late, late during the lunch hour in Virginia, I take it. And if you, uh, he's, a, he's a Canadian. Uh, we're thinking about letting him into the United States. Uh, I would allow it, uh, but, but we'll see whether he qualifies. And he really has to go to, to do this interview in order, to, in order to go through with that process. So he's going to speak first uh, and, and then have to leave, unfortunately. Maybe we'll have a little time for Q&A. Uh, next, we should hear from Congressman Scott Garrett. Congressman Garrett's in a markup right now, so as is typical, uh, he may uh, come a little bit later or come a little bit earlier, and, and we'll, go with, we'll go with the flow. And then we'll hear from Kalia Barnes from the Electronic Privacy Information Center, uh, who, uh, who Kalia and her organization have been doing a lot of work on these issues. So I'll introduce each in, in order as they start. Chris demanded a very short introduction. Uh, he's the director of ta tax policy studies at the Cato Institute and the editor of downsizinggovernment.org. Uh, please welcome prospective U.S. citizen Chris Edwards. Thank you very much, Jim, and thanks for helping organize today's event, and thanks for being here, Kalia. And I'm uh, also a big fan of uh, Congressman Garrett, who's one of the uh, very much uh, budget-reforming and small-government-oriented uh, small uh, uh, Republicans in the House. Uh, so we're going to talk about the TSA today. The TSA was created in 2001, after 9-11, it's got an $8 billion budget, and its main task is passenger and um, baggage screening at 450 U.S. airports. The TSA is a big part of the Department of Homeland Security, about 60,000 of DHS's 200,000 employees. So it's a, it's a big bureaucracy. So before 2001, airport screening was done by the airlines and regulated very poorly by the FAA. Uh, just two months after 9-11, Congress rushed through, in frankly a very rash way, uh, the TSA law, which nationalized airport screening nationwide. Uh, this was a, a, a remarkable uh, piece of legislation because it went against the grain of what most other industrial countries uh, do. Most, other, most countries in Europe and Canada and others have privatized airport screening. And it was also against the grain of the supposedly market orientation of the Republican administration of the time. 
So my new uh, Cato paper, which comes out next week and will look like that, um, talks about privatizing the uh, airline screening and eliminating the TSA. Uh, I think that a decade of experience has shown that creating the, the TSA and nationalizing airport screening was a big mistake. And I think the solution is to go the European or Canadian way to privatize airport screening. So I'm just going to run through some of the problems we've seen over the last decade uh, with the TSA and then give a basic few points about why privatization uh, would be a good idea. So one big problem area for the TSA has been workforce mismanagement. It's had problems since the beginning. Way back in 2002, the very first big scandal with the TSA is it budgeted $100 million to uh, hire uh, its large uh, workforce of screeners, it ended up spending $700 million, a massive cost overrun. And since then, there's been story after story of, of scandals and poor performance at the TSA. Uh, these stories have highlighted baggage screening failures, high worker turnover, low employee morale at the TSA, which continues to today, chronic problems of employee theft uh, by TSA employees from luggage, and lots of investigations by news media and auditors uh, exposing the embarrassing security breaches at the TSA. Uh, the TSA has been, target, has been the target of sharp criticism from many experts. Uh, former TSA head Kip Hawley uh, had an op-ed last year where he called the TSA hopelessly bureaucratic. Representative John Micah, who is a former head of uh, a committee overseeing TSA, has been scathing in his criticism. He's called TSA... He's talked about the TSA's track record of security failures. He says the agency has a penchant for bungling aviation security, wasting taxpayers' money, and a bureaucratic nightmare. And I think all those are pretty accurate. Two House Republican reports last year slammed the TSA. So in sum, the TSA, frankly, is a typical large and inefficient government bureaucracy. Uh, there is a public interest in aviation security, of course, and there are proper federal roles in aviation security, like terrorism intelligence, However, running a, a massive screening operations uh, and running this big workforce of the TSA, that is not a comparative government advantage. A second big area of problems at the TSA has been its inefficient uh, investment program, its inefficient allocation of resources. Uh, many security experts have criticized TSA on how it allocates money. The TSA doesn't seem to do rigorous cost-benefit analysis before it spends a lot of money. As Jim mentioned, there's a good piece in the Washington Post this morning uh, reporting on uh, a new GAO study that basically says that the, the uh, TSA spent almost a billion dollars on the SPOT program, which tries to identify terrorists at airports based on their behavior. Uh, the GAO says there's basically there's no science behind this program. It's been a waste of money, and in a rare move for GAO, they're actually calling for eliminating the program. Um, there are other programs like that. I think Jim and Kalia will talk about the body scanners that are now in place at airports across the United States. These are hugely expensive and seem to only have very minimal uh, additional uh, detection benefits. The GAO, again, has criticized the TSA on the uh, body scanning machines, basically saying they haven't done a good cost-benefit analysis on these machines to see whether they're really worth it. Uh, the air marshal service run by the TSA costs taxpayers a billion dollars a year, and again, this program is frankly pretty dubious. It, dubious. it doesn't seem to have any demonstrated uh, substantial benefits. Screening performance. Uh, we have a decade of studies showing that government airport screening is no better and perhaps worse than private airport screening. And we know that because as part of the original 2001 TSA law, 
thanks to uh, House Republicans, they slipped in a provision, provision that allowed some airports in the United States to contract out their screening. And today there are 16 airports, uh, the biggest being San Francisco, that, that has private uh, airport screeners uh, under the regulatory authority of the TSA. So there's been many GAO and TSA uh, inspector general studies over the last decades that have compared these privatized, uh, this, the 16 airports with private screening to the government screening airports. And basically they have found either they perform similarly in terms of their security or the private screening was marginally better. So just to give you uh, a taste of some of these studies, so in 2005 the Department of Homeland Security inspector general uh, looked at the, the, pri the uh, private airport screening and the new TSA government screening and found, quote, the ability of TSA screeners to stop prohibited items from being carried through the sterile areas of airports fared no better than the performance of the private screeners prior to 9-11, unquote. So we spent this massive amount of money, we nationalized the screening, the Inspector General of DHS found that really we haven't improved performance at all. Uh, a 2011 study by the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee found that San Francisco, which has privatized airport screening, is a lot more efficient than Los Angeles uh, LAX, which has the government TSA screening. 2012, the GAO compared the performance of 16 at the 16 privatized airport uh, airports with privatized screening to other TSA airports and found basically that the performance was similar. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of reasons why the private screening uh, has an edge over a government screening. The New York Times piece recently uh, uh, quoted the, uh, the head of the uh, Kansas City, Missouri airport, which is one of the privatized screening airports. Uh, he says that uh, uh, they, they, uh, they like private contractors because, frankly, they're more accountable, he says, in the TSA screeners. So he says, this is the head of the Kansas airport, he says, quote, I can make one call after an incident to the person in charge of the entire operation and get a call back in minutes and fix the problem, unquote. He said, I couldn't do that with a TSA. So he said that there are cost savings with the private screening, there's lower employee turnover, uh, better employee morale and better treatment of passengers with privatized screening. So for that reason, there are uh, a lot of airports interested in privatized screening uh, if they get approval from the TSA in Washington. So there are no security advantages with government screening and perhaps there are possible disadvantages. There's also disadvantages in terms of cost and inefficiency and also civil liberties, as Jim and Kalia will uh, discuss. So, you know, my, I come down in my, my uh, new Cato paper, why not privatize it? Uh, TSA has a near monopoly on aviation security in this country, and any economist will tell you, or any analyst, you know, in general, will tell you that monopolies of any type are generally not good. And the TSA is both sort of uh, an operator of aviation security, airport screening, but also the regulator, an overseer, and any sort of a good government reform would separate out that basic, the operation of an activity from the regulatory oversight. Um, as uh, aviation expert Robert Poole has argued and Representative John Micah, there's a basic conflict of interest here. The TSA is both the operator and the overseer of, of air aviation security. So aviation security, uh, we should split apart the screening from the regulatory oversight, and the way to do that is to move the screening back to the control of airports, uh, let, uh, keep the federal role uh, in overall aviation oversight and terrorism intelligence and that sort of thing. Uh, that is the structure that most European countries uh, use. 
as uh, Robert Poole and others have looked at uh, the uh, airport screening in Europe, uh, over 80% of European airports use privatized screening uh, under uh, uh, government uh, sort of oversight or, or regulatory control. Basically, Europe uh, during the 60s and the 70s, as Poole discusses, had a big rash of hijackings and, and terrorism more than the United States. Their first reaction was to go to government screening uh, like we did post 9-11. But during the 90s and the 2000s, Europe, uh, most countries in Europe realized that that was the wrong approach, and they've now gone to privatized screening. Countries like uh, England, uh, France, Germany, they have a national uh, regulatory authority, but the individual airports go out and they do competitive contracting for their screeners. Uh, few countries use the, the uh, few if any, any countries in Europe use the U.S. system of kind of a giant uh, government monopoly. And the final point here is uh, uh, Jim mentioned I was born and raised in Canada. Canada does a lot of things wrong, but on aviation they're doing a lot of things right. So after 9-11, uh, Canada uh, looked at what Europe was doing. It looked at the nationalization in the United States. They went the European route. They created a, a, a regulatory authority to, to oversee aviation security. But, uh, aviation, but the screening at all Canadian airports uh, are private. There are a number of multinational uh, companies that compete and bid on, uh, on, on screening and security at airports around the world. So these are expert uh, companies uh, uh, that, uh, that operate the screening. Uh, so a final comment, and then I'm going to hand the podium back to, to uh, Jim, is, is that you know, I've written a lot on uh, the aviation industry in recent years because it has occurred to me that, you know, the United States, of course, has been a, a great leader in aviation throughout the 20th century, but w we really risk falling, uh, falling behind in the 21st century, partly because our aviation is becoming so government-dominated. So to, to provide a contrast with Canada, in the 1990s, Canada privatized all its major airports. They are run independently. They are unsubsidized uh, by government. And that model has worked very well. In 1996, Canada privatized its air traffic control system. Again, air traffic control in Canada was set up as a private, uh, non-profit corporation, unsubsidized by government. And that model has worked extremely well uh, also. And uh, Canada private, has privatized airport screening. So this is the direction of reform I think we ought to take in the United States. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that, hand the podium back to Jim. And again, very uh, happy that uh, Congressman Garrett is here to uh, discuss TSA with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And, and uh, we wish you luck in your, in your citizenship interview. Uh, I'll say this, that, that you're all invited to the party when Chris actually gets his citizenship, but he does have to, to uh, take his leave right now, so he can, he can do that. Uh, apparently, you don't mess with the, uh, with the immigration service when you're, when you're working on uh, getting your citizenship. Uh, Chris, Chris, Chris's story reminds me of, a, of another Canadian colleague of mine who tells a great joke that I'm going to tell and steal, uh, Ilya Shapiro in our Center for Constitutional Studies. He is also a Canadian. And, and he likes to point out that uh, he's like many other immigrants. Uh, he does a job that most Americans won't do, which is to defend the Constitution. Um, luckily, we have someone here with us who does defend the Constitution, uh, Congressman Scott Garrett. He represents New Jersey's 5th Congressional District. He's a member of the House Budget Committee and the House Financial Services Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Financial Services Subcommittee on Capital Markets and Government-Sponsored Enterprises. On a different day, we'd obviously uh, love to talk about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, Congressman Garrett, though, as I'll emphasize, is also the founder and chairman of the Congressional Constitution Caucus. Uh, the Constitution is, is too often honored in the breach here on Capitol Hill, and we are very appreciative of his work to protect 
and defend our nation's founding charter. As you'll see in moments, he's a noted critic of TSA's visible intermodal prevention and response program known as VIPER. He has a bill, H.R. 2589, the Freedom of Travel Act of 2013, that would prohibit the Transportation Security Administration from performing security screening operations on, in surface transportation. So we're very pleased to have Congressman Scott Garrett. Congressman Garrett. Thank you. Applause, applause, applause. Calm, calm down. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the introduction. Appreciate the chance to uh, be with you for uh, a few minutes. Just coming from running out of a uh, committee markup um, in financial services, where as we left right now, the debate was: Does Congress have the authority to tell an agency, in this case the SEC, um, what regulations they have to promulgate and when they have to promulgate the regulations? We would argue that we have that authority. The other side, the argue, says absolutely not. Um, so that's where we're. Uh, where were we on that issue? So again, thanks for a chance to be, come here, and I guess that was um, my uh, my free lunch. Uh, so I can I can challenge the uh, the quote fittingly, I guess, or inappropriately fitted, ironically, I guess, here at Cato that uh, the quote that there is no such thing as a free lunch, and yes, there is. Um, a, another quote then that I would like to hearken back to is one you all familiar with from Oliver Wendell Holmes um, from Supreme Court when he said, "You can't." shout fire in a crowded theater. Uh, the lesson, of course, is that there are limits to our freedom, and in this case, the limits to our free speech freedom, and in that perilous time, certain freedoms can and are curtailed to ensure, why, public safety. But what is often forgotten is what Oliver Wendell Holmes was doing in that case when he said that. That was in Schenck versus the United States. Which, what they were doing, they were sending a socialist to jail for the crime of distributing literature that was opposing the entry of the United States into the First World War. And it's also oftentimes forgotten, just a year later, that'd be 1919, that the Supreme Court took up a similar case. That was Abrams versus the United States. And despite the fact that a significant amount of the defendant's anti-war literature at the time was written in Yiddish, a language that uh, most people, of course, then and now, uh, can't read. Still, the Supreme Court held up the 20-year imprisonment sentence of the defendant. Holmes, however, dissented. So we should keep that in mind when Americans have another lesson to learn now. What happens when the government insists that the nation is, as we are right now, in a perpetual state of war, an emergency, and we cannot tolerate any contrary thought? What happens when more and more liberties are being sacrificed without any perceptible improvement in the security of the nation, as my previous speaker just said. What happens when the state views every bit of travel and every traveler, every pair of scissors, every liquid of over three ounces as a threat to our security? So this then is the situation we find ourselves in today and with the TSA. As we know, all know, the TSA grew out of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and there certainly are well-known problems with the TSA, and many people opposed to a creation on principle, you can think about it, as it grew out of it, there is some basic logic to it. But 12 years later, Americans still take our shoes off and our belts off when we go to the airport, have our bags rummaged through by unknown agents uh, in latex gloves, surrender to our personal uh, privacy at x-ray machines and being pat down um, by boarding a plane. You would think then that the, uh, the extent of the TSA is limited to just what I described. 
But if you thought that, of course, you would be wrong. In 2005, the TSA developed something called the VIPER program, the Visible Intermodal Prevention and Response Team, otherwise known, as I say, as VIPER, which have the authority to do what? To enter any transportation facility, anytime, anywhere, and to subject citizens like you and I to a search of your person and your property. And since that time, VIPER teams have conducted literally thousands of unannounced random sweeps of buses, of trains, and subway stations, as well as ferry terminals, um, that are charged with and deterring preventing future terrorist attacks. Theory is that by going out there like they are, arriving unannounced at random locations, terrorists will be so confused um, as to where the Viper teams will show up the next time that they will not even try to conduct a terrorist attack. Or if they do, the Viper team will have somehow miraculously be right at that particular ferry or terminal at the right time, at the right place to be able to stop it. But the reach of the TSA even goes beyond that problem. It, beyond, it goes beyond mass transit systems. It goes out actually into our highway systems and private vehicles. As drivers in Tennessee found out a little bit ago, when they passed through random um, roadside checkpoints and they were subject to TSA inspection. So as you might have guessed, throughout all those things that I've just talked about, no terrorists have been found but a lot of time and money and, of course, fuel along the highway were wasted in the effort. But the TSA, if they were here, and they're not here, are they? No, okay. If the TSA were here, they would like to argue that they are, by the name, the T, transportation, transportation security, and that it's perfectly acceptable, then, for them to uh, be authorized to screen the traveling public anytime, anywhere that they think they want to. But the reach of the TSA goes even farther than that. Turns out, you don't even have to be traveling in order to be subject to a TSA search. Viper teams have conducted operations and searches at political party conventions, at concerts, at NASCAR races, and even at NFL games. So what does that all mean? That means that the type of search that Americans would expect to be submitted to anytime you go to the airport and boarding a plane and coming will now be without warning anytime you go out to run an errand, go on a highway just running it down the street, or attending a sporting event. So there, when you consider all that, there is no conceivable aspect of our lives, uh, even when you leave here today, that is free from the TSA and their Viper squads. Despite all that all-consuming and all-encompassing reach, the TSA has very little of a no record of making Americans any safer. Given the random nature of its operations, it comes as no surprise that a 2011 Los Angeles Times article revealed, quote, that the TSA officials say that they have no proof that roving Viper teams have foiled any terrorist plots or thwarted any major threat to public safety, end quote. Now, after that article came out, the TSA now, appropriately, refuses to comment anymore on the effectiveness of the Viper teams whether it's foiling attacks, but they're always very willing, you may see in some of the articles when they talk about them, they're always willing to talk about the deterrent effects, which presumably is uh, all they're able to do at this time by their mere presence out there. I would argue that this entire Viper team is not security. It is a lot, like a lot what comes out of the government today, purely security theater. And perhaps no example more clearly demonstrates this than a Viper operation a little bit ago down in Savannah, Georgia, in which Amtrak passengers were searched um, by TSA after 
they disembarked um, from the train. And obviously, if you're leaving the train and going out from there, there's absolutely no security purpose or safety purpose in doing that um, inspection. So what do we have here? The TSA has mission creep, and the mission creep from the limited scope of air travel to every conceivable mode of transportation, as well as large events. Um, all of this, of course, is done in an unconstitutional violation of the Fourth Amendment, which is a guarantee against unreasonable searches and seizures and impedes the ability of all of us Americans to travel freely. And that is why, as the intro stated, I've introduced the Freedom of Travel Act. This legislation, in essence, would protect our Fourth Amendment rights by abolishing the Viper program, as well as denying the TSA the authority to conduct security screening outside of an airport. When you think about this, if you shouldn't just focus on the Viper teams, you're just remembering that the Fourth Amendment is not just a limitation on government action. The Fourth Amendment is a fundamental component of the principles of liberty that contributed to our independence. The Fourth Amendment was largely a response to British writs of assistance, which served back then as general warrants that permitted almost um, unlimited searches by British officials. And that sort of, if you think about it, sounds a lot like what the TSA is trying to do. Back in uh, 1761 at the Old State House in Boston, and I assume it wasn't called the Old State House back in 1761, um, an attorney by the name of uh, James Otis forcefully attacked the writs of assistance as an infringement on our individual rights. Later, John Adams was so inspired by the eloquence of Otis's arguments that he then wrote, Quote, then and there, the child of independence was born. So today, the government that Otis and Adams helped found claims an almost limitless power to search and siege and inconvenience supposedly every free American suspected of absolutely no crime. As free men and women, I would say that we must combat this notion that law-abiding citizens are at all time subject to be searched by the government. So the Freedom of Travel Act would make a significant step in restoring the Fourth Amendment by putting to an end the existence of the Viper teams and halting once and for all Viper's mission creep. So when you leave here today, after you finish your uh, lunch, I haven't had breakfast or lunch, that's why I'm looking eagerly at the plate, I would encourage all of you to go back and encourage your bosses to co-sponsor this legislation, but I would also encourage you to take even greater action than that as to when you go back to your homes, wherever they may be, to bring up this issue of the Fourth Amendment and our rights that are being violated to all your friends, family, and relatives as well. In short, I encourage you to, as I said at the beginning, to shout fire, but in this case, shout fire in the course in the theater of public debate on protecting our freedoms and our liberty. So I thank you again for the opportunity to be here and what you all do. Thank you. God bless. Thank you very much for your uh, comments, Representative Garrett. Uh, we're sorry that you have to leave for your markup, but take, the take whatever take whatever food you like. On the on the free lunch point, I like to I like to joke that uh, we do serve lunch at the Cato Institute, but the cost of it is you have to listen to us talk. It can be a very expensive one sometimes. <laughs> no, sir. Thanks very much for your remarks. Thanks again. Uh, Kalia Barnes' uh, parents uh, probably had no idea of the future work that she would do when they named her, but they gave her a name that coincides with the acronymic name for the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act. 
which is basically a law that requires uh, telecommunications providers to assist the, the government in surveilling their customers. Um, she's working now to, uh, to make up for that unfortunate name that, that she was given, <laughs> Kalia is. Uh, let me introduce her now and welcome her, uh, her remarks on the TSA. Uh, Kalia is, is uh, the Electronic Privacy Information Center's Administrative Law Counsel. In that role, she researches proposed federal agency privacy regulations pertaining to government collection, retention, and dissemination of personal information. She focuses on domestic surveillance, student privacy, medical privacy, and open government. She challenges final agency regulations in federal court. Uh, Epic and Kalia have, have spearheaded litigation that I might talk about at some length uh, to, to wrap things up uh, during this phase. Uh, their work required the agency to take comments from the public on the policy of using um, strip search machines as primary screening. And the, the result of their lawsuit was, was to require a rulemaking process that I think will hasten the end of that program or at least dramatically reshape it uh, as time goes on. And, and that will help to restore privacy and dignity to the American traveler. So we thank Kalia and Epic for their work. She's a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center a bachelor's degree in political science with a French minor from Emory. So if she um, turns to French, we'll, we'll be interested to hear that. Her prior work experience includes a stint in the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy. Please welcome Kalia Barnes. Kalia. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Cato, for hosting this event. Thank you all for uh, coming out. Um, so EPIC, uh, in a reciprocal fashion, has closely followed the TSA's actions. TSA is always following what the public does, so EPIC has been following what TSA has done. And we've noticed at least two things over the last few years. And number one is that, uh, as Congressman Garrett uh, discussed, the agency has gradually exceeded its authority. And number two, as it is it continues to expand its authority, it's moving from a more objective standards to more subjective standards, more nebulous. We, we see a lot of this risk-based assessment. You hear that a lot in the airports. You hear that a lot with Viper. So that's really where TSA has moved. Um, and to talk about first the, the body scanners, that's a prime example of number one, the agency exceeded its authority because it deployed body scanners without first taking public comment as was required by the Administrative Procedure Act. So that's one of the prime examples of the agency exceeding its authority and two, moving to more nebulous standards. Initially, body scanners were designed to detect threats. Uh, but what we saw in the proposed rule is that TSA has now moved to look for anomalies, right? And what's an anomaly? And in our comments, as well as Cato, many other people brought up this issue. If you are a person who wears a medical device, oftentimes you go through the scanners and then you're pulled aside for an invasive pat down. We also had many members of the transgender community say, we're going through these body scanners and then our privacy is being violated because the TSA is looking for quote unquote anomalies. It's not really clear what they're looking for. Uh, and the same can be true, to, can be said about TSA Viper. Number one, the agency is exceeding its authority. It's really encroaching on state and local law enforcement territory. Um, if you read the New York Times article, you see that whatever TSA, to the extent that TSA has found anything, it's local and state crimes. It's evidence of prostitution. It's evidence of uh, petty drug crimes. That's not why the agency was established, and that's not within the purview of the agency's jurisdiction. So number one, the agency exceeds its statutory authority. And, and number two is moving towards nebulous standards. The agency, and, and this relates to the GAO report from yesterday, is really deploying the 
behavioral de detection operation. Once again, looking for risk-based type of behavior. We're not talking probable cause. We're not even talking reasonable suspicion. Now, why does this matter? Where do civil liberties come into play? Well, civil, civil liberties absolutely depend on bright line rules, right? So the bright line rules, number one, grant individuals certain rights, and number two, impose obligations on the government. So you have the right to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment. And what does the government have to do if it wants to perform a search? It's obligated to obtain a warrant but right now, what the TSA Viper team has done is said, we're really adhering to, and Congressman Garrett hit the nail on the head, a general warrant standard. And in that purview, and in, in that instance, you don't have any type of rights to be protected when TSA approaches individuals. It's not state and local law enforcement saying, we have a warrant, we have probable cause, right? And then it also removes any obligation on TSA to search individuals with a warrant, to stop individuals subject to probable cause or reasonable suspicion. And when we're dealing with general warrants, that's where the privacy violations uh, appear because there's no check on any type of government power. They can stop for whatever uh, they see fit. Uh, and also, one of the issues, another issue uh, that arises is really the TSA Viper program is missing what we always call for in the privacy community, which is meaningful transparency, meaningful accountability, and meaningful oversight. So first, let's talking about transparency. Um, previously, TSA would say, oh, you know, we, we were, um, we can't discuss exactly uh, what we've uncovered. Right? There, there was no form of transparency. And not only was there, there no transparency in the results, as the New York Times article pointed out, the, the, then the TSA Viper uh, team started classifying their results. Um, additionally, with the transparency, this goes back to the fact that there aren't objective standards. It's not clear, it's not transparent what the government agency is looking for. Uh, number two, there's no accountability with TSA Viper uh, programs. If a police officer was to come in here today, rifle through your bags, you could hold him or her accountable. You could say, you didn't do this with a warrant. You didn't meet your obligations, and that officer would be held to task. That's not the case with the TSA Viper, because the TSA Viper teams, because they're operating not pursuant to any type of warrant. They don't really have to answer your questions when, they're, when you say, well, why would you search? And they say, well, this is an administrative uh, warrant, which is very broad and amounts to a general warrant. And also, uh, administrative, uh, administrative searches, rather, really are to only operate within the airport context. But what the agency has done is applied this outside of the airport context. Uh, and number three, there's really no meaningful oversight. Congressman Garrett, the work that he's doing will lead uh, to reining back in uh, the agency. Uh, we did, however, get some form of oversight with the GAO report, and what it revealed is this behavioral detection, this risk-based assessment isn't working, and it's encroaching on rights. Now, we get to solutions, because oftentimes in the privacy community, people always accuse us of yelling at the sky and asking, what are your worries? What are your concerns? Is privacy dead? And the answer is no. There are solutions. Number one, legislation like what the congressman proposed to, to defund that type of program, to limit TSA scope, put it back to where it started, which is in the airport. Uh, number two, the GAA 
GAO report was a very good first step to basically call on Congress to also say, let's defund these behavioral detective, behavioral detection operations because they're not effective. And number three, we should really start looking more to the Privacy, Civil Liberties, and Oversight Board, P-Club, to get involved, because this is also within their jurisdiction. So P-Club uh, was established uh, to protect civil liberties and privacy, and they look at agencies who have a mission uh, to fight the war on terror. And oftentimes, right now, they've really been heavily focusing on the NSA, like a lot of other congressional committees and everything. And EPIC has underscored that while that's a, that's a very good first step, TSA will also be within the purview of P-Club. And so this is an opportunity for that oversight board to look at programs like Viper, to look at programs like TSA Secure Flight, which is the program that applies um, anytime you travel in the airport to look at the body scanners, to expand really uh, its agenda and look at other agencies who are encroaching on uh, privacy, privacy and, and civil liberties. So I really think that those are what going forward can happen to make sure uh, that individuals are not subject to warrantless uh, and random and suspicionless searches. Uh, and, and another issue that is also coming up with the TSA Viber programs is that there's an issue sometimes of, of profiling. When, you, when the agency doesn't know exactly what it's looking for, it, it gives uh, agents almost like a carte blanche, to, and there's that French minor, um, <laughs> it gives agencies, agents a carte blanche to just kind of stop whoever they're unfamiliar with, maybe someone they don't like the way that they look, any type of um, prejudices that they have coming to the table. But when we have objective standards, uh, we can work to ensure that that doesn't happen. So um, with that, I could be open for questions or? Okay, I'll, I'll Sure. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you for saving my reference to your French minor with the use of carte blanche. Uh, PCLOB, by the way, is the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which is an executive board that's uh, uh, been a long time in being staffed and, and is definitely spending a lot of time on FISA issues right now. I'll share a few thoughts, and then we can go to Q&A and discussion among, amongst ourselves. Uh, when I think about these issues, I'm uh, guided in some part by an observation made by Bruce Schneier. Bruce Schneier is, an, is a cryptologist whose work on Internet security generalizes quite well to security issues overall. Uh, he's actually, I think he's, he's credited with coining the phrase security theater to describe a lot of what happens at the airport, stuff that looks like it secures but uh, actually just uh, uh, creates an appearance without actual security. But he also talked about the nature of security, what security is. And it's really a two-parter security. Uh, it's, it's the actual control of risks so that you are uh, relatively safe, safe enough. There's, nothing, there's no such thing as absolute uh, perfect security or safety, but it's, the, it's literally being safe. The second part of it, just as important, is the feeling of being safe. Uh, because the reason we have security is so that we can uh, exercise our freedom to its fullest. Uh, if you know that you're safe, uh, in a technical sense, but fear for your life or fear for your health or fear for your pocketbook uh, whenever you go out or whenever you travel, the job of security is not done. And I think this Viper program, the, the Visible Intermodal Protection Response Program, is a classic example of failure on the second prong of security. I don't think it provides very much of the first prong, actual control of risks, but on the second prong, an, an abject failure. What does it signal to Americans, traveling or not, if they see teams of federal agents uh, swooping in 
on a bus station or a train station uh, and, and uh, stopping people and searching them and forcing them, that signals to average Americans, you're unsafe. Things are bad. Uh, there are lots of programs beyond Viper that do ver a, a bad job on that second prong of security because they signal to Americans, you're unsafe. Uh, they also signal, you need us. Uh, that's a part, perhaps part of why these, these programs are so persistent is because they're very visible signals of the fact that, the, that people are not safe, though that's not true, uh, but that drives public and political support to security agencies and security programs. Now, Viper, along with many other programs, also fail on that first prong. And the question of, of how and how well a program secures is a hard one. Uh, it involves uh, balancing costs and benefits, which are actually kind of difficult to quantify. The costs are relatively easy in terms of dollars, and the TSA spends huge amounts of dollars. It probably fails just based on dollars without considering uh, things like privacy and civil liberties, but those costs are large as well. And then there are things like opportunity costs. How much time do American travelers spend at the airport? How much earlier do they come to the airport anticipating some kind of random treatment that might delay them five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 minutes? Um, hundreds of millions of dollars in opportunity costs because people know they can't be confident of getting through the airport quickly and easily. The benefit side of the equation is really quite difficult because you have to consider reduction of threats. And I think most people in the country and many analysts in Washington, D.C., uh, don't understand the, the, the threat situation in the United States. They actually benefit to some degree by assuming uh, an outsized uh, threat profile in the United States. Now, uh, certainly we suffered a, a devastating attack on September 11th, but I think time and study have shown that that was an outlier and not a harbinger of things to come. At Cato, we've done a lot of work over a lot of years. I spent three years working with my colleague Chris Preble uh, in, in the uh, foreign relations area, and in defense studies, uh, Ben Friedman, uh, doing large conferences with terrorism experts from around the nation and world. We produced a book called Terroring Our Terrorizing Ourselves, which somewhat, the title, uh, somewhat reflects our finding that the, uh, our politics and our media tend to drive perceptions of, of uh, threat quite a bit higher when the actual facts are quite a bit better. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, we conducted at Cato an event called Dangerous World, looking into that assumption that most people hold that we are in a very dangerous world. Um, by every measure, this is, this is maybe surprising to you, but by every measure, the world is safer if you look at it in historical perspective. There's less civil war, there's less strife, you're less likely to die in war, you're less likely to die by, by, various, by various measures. Yet, uh, particularly our politicians, some of your bosses, sort of make ceremonial incantations the world is unstable and dangerous. Anything could happen any time. We live under a cloud of threat. Whatever the phraseology may be, everybody's in the habit of just laying that down as a premise that, that we're really, really unsafe, we're really in danger. It's not the case. We're, we're actually quite safe. To illustrate this, and I usually I, I talk about this with reference to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, I talk about the threat environment of the United States when I was a kid. Looking around, I doubt if many of you have this recollection, but when I was, a, when I was a, a, a student, we did duck and cover drills. That is, jumping under our desks and putting our hands over our, our heads and necks. And we anticipated that our deaths would be announced to us by a blinding flash of light off in the distance, which signaled, signaled nuclear war with the Soviet Union. How much safer are we today than we, when we lived under that threat environment? 
the chance this is, uh, the, 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 the science shows, the social science shows that this doesn't reassure anybody, telling you this fact, but the chance of you dying at the hands of a terrorist is something on the order of being struck by lightning or, or dying from drowning in a bathtub or even a bucket. It's a very, very low likelihood of suffering from these threats. But we regard them, we're fascinated by them, and there's something about the human brain that is very attracted to them. We're supposed to think about these things analytically. And the work we've done at Cato, the work that Epic has done, is trying to drive analytical thinking and good legal thinking uh, into the administrative agencies and into TSA. So I'll give a quick update on the, on the TSA strip search policy and the status of it before we go to some Q&A and discussion. Uh, the Electronic Privacy Information Center filed a lawsuit against the strip search machine policy quite a while back. And in uh, July of 2011, if I'm not mistaken, they got a ruling from the DC, uh, the, the DC Circuit Court that was very important. It was, it, was a, it was a bad ruling on the Fourth Amendment because they sort of hand-waved and said, well, administrative search, very dangerous world. We don't want to get into that. You understand courts want, not wanting to be the ones in the lead on this. But something like 15 of the 17 pages of the, of the uh, ruling dealt with the failure of the TSA to conduct a notice and comment rulemaking that is failing to follow administrative procedures that are required by Title V of the U.S. Code, required by this Congress to do. That means hearing from the public and hearing from experts about the qualities of this program. How and how well does it actually secure? Is it cost effective? Does it provide uh, more in security than it costs in dollars, privacy, opportunity costs, and others? It took 18 months for the agency finally to come up with a rule and to announce it. The rule was a paltry something less than three sentences, three sentences less than 50 words. It was really uh, sort of an embarrassment as a regulation and just restated a very broad policy. But the comment period on that closed in June 2013 and now we wait again until it comes to a, a, to a decision on the rule and issues a final rule. But at that time I'm very interested and optimistic because a, a proposed regulation can be challenged in court under the Administrative Procedures Act Procedure Act's arbitrary and capricious standard. So if the evidence that commenters like Cato, Epic, and others uh, put into the record shows that the agency is not being rational and logical about this, this policy, the court can strike it down. And we can move back toward a law-bound environment at the airport. That is agencies like the TSA thinking carefully, doing risk management, um, seeing whether uh, security can be nested well with customer service, can be nested well with cost control and other dimensions of air travel. My opinion is that the TSA uh, should be, should be uh, shut down, that this responsibility should re be restored to airports and airlines, and I've been on the record about that for years. Uh, it's the best thinking out there, I'll just say a little bit self-interestedly. Um, with that, though, let's, uh, let's conclude the, the formal part of the, of the discussion and come to, come to Q&A with uh, you, me, and Kalia. Thanks very much for being here, and, and let's continue on with some, some discussion.